Hi listeners! Now, before we start this episode, we need to make a quick shout out to those of you who followed the podcast on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys were probably as surprised as we were to see that the podcast Facebook page mysteriously disappeared a little while mm. ago. And since then, we promise we've exhausted ourselves trying to get Facebook to bring it back to life. But they don't seem to know what happened to it either. And it does seem like it's kind of gone forever, which is a bit of a bummer. It is a bummer. So <laughs> apologies to those of you who got your episode updates there. The good news is that you can still find us all of our social media updates over on Twitter. So if, if you used to be in our Facebook club and you want to get back on getting Irish passport updates, you can find us over at Twitter on at Passport Irish. We'll be looking forward to seeing you there. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Hello, Ooh. welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, welcome, Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. This week, we're talking about an issue that's very much in the news right now, the situation in Ukraine and the common ground and history that Ukraine and Ireland share. As we are recording, the situation in Ukraine is evolving very quickly, Mm. and there's no shortage of international confusion about what exactly is going on and what the consequences might be. One person, however, has not only been providing Ireland with the latest updates from Ukraine, but has been doing so through the medium of the Irish language. That person is Nadia Dobryanska, who's something of an adopted Irish woman and a fluent Irish speaker. She works on human rights and advancing the cause of the rule of law and civil society in Ukraine with the Human Rights Centre Zmina. Recently, she's also been reporting on the current situation for Irish language media. Nadia also happens to be part of the Irish Passport community, since she's an avid listener to this very podcast, and she has very kindly agreed to speak to us about the parallels between the history of Ireland and Ukraine, two countries, as we'll find out, who began asserting their nationhood at around the same time, who both suffered repression at the hands of a more powerful neighbour, and who have had common experiences of the devastating effects of famine. Our chat will also take us through the modern history of Ukraine and its recent struggle to align more closely with the European Union that has provoked such an aggressive response from Russia. But before we get into all that, let's take a minute to thank our sponsors, Irish at Heart. Irish at Heart is the world's premier Irish subscription box. They deliver a beautiful green box of surprise gifts to customers all over the world. You can expect a gorgeous selection of treats directly from Ireland, perhaps something to eat, something to scent, Something to wear. And of course, next month is St. Patrick's Day, meaning that the lucky subscribers who have signed up on time will receive the highly popular St. Patrick's Day edition of the Irish at Heart box. Subscriptions start at just $42 a month and you save 50% of the recommended retail price of the beautiful gifts that you'll receive. And that's not all. Listeners to the Irish Passport can benefit from 15% off their initial purchase by using the code IRISHPASSPORT in the discount bar when you check out. You can sign up to Irish at Heart on their website irish-at-heart.com. That's irishatheart.com with a hyphen between each word. And you can find a link in the episode description below. It's a great gift idea too, remember that. Head on over to irish-at-heart.com to sign up. And don't forget to use your discount code. Nice, do check that out. Here, 
That's the sound of a traditional Irish music session, but it's not coming from Doolin or from Donegal. That was recorded this Sunday in O'Brien's pub in downtown Kiev, in Ukraine, not far from the banks of the River Dnieper, where a group of musicians who play traditional Irish music gather for a regular session. The singer is Nadia Dobrianska, who works in a human rights organization in the city. My name is Nadia Dobrianska. I'm in Kiev. I was born here and I'm working as a project manager at a human rights organization and I'm working on human rights related to the Russian aggression against Ukraine with political prisoners. If you spotted a little bit of Irish in Nadia's accent, that's because she is a former resident of Belfast. She moved to the city in 2019 to follow her studies of Irish culture and history, and she immediately became interested in how the political history of the city played out all around her. When I started studying, I was really struck by lived experiences of people who lived through through the Troubles and living in Belfast after the Troubles was very enlightening. I have lots of stories from that. I used to live in loyalist area for for almost a year because I was doing Irish studies. I I had to keep quiet because my landlady was fine with me doing Irish studies, but I couldn't play the Irish flute there. I couldn't discuss with neighbours that I'm going to the false road to study Irish. Uh, I wasn't prepared to that, but when I came back to Ukraine, I suddenly had this new perspective on the on the war and how people uh, in Ukraine and in the occupied territories are seeing the war. And before going to Belfast as a policy analyst and policy advisor in Ukraine, I didn't work with any conflict related issues. I just didn't, I just couldn't. I was, I just felt completely paralyzed with the fear and uh, despair about it. But having lived in Belfast and having studied uh, conflict and Irish history of the troubles of the twenties and partition, I could see that it's just part of human experience that these things happen and now I can I can work with it. Not only did Nadia fall in love with Irish studies while studying in Belfast, she became a fluent Irish speaker herself. I've, I've been developing my competence in Irish and I started off with a year in Duolingo and then I did two, like, two terms at Cultural Alum Academy on the Falls Road in Belfast and then I I started working with the, with the tutor. I, I wasn't even sure that I'm fluent enough to speak to the radio, but then I, when I was invited to, I, it turned out that I am. And it's, it's a big challenge for me, but I'm up for it. And it seems to, to work quite fine. This is not because uh, there's something special that I was doing. It's just consistent work. And the time that she spent learning Irish has taken Nadia on an unexpected path. With the world's attention now focused on Ukraine as Russian forces mass on its borders, Nadia has become something of a correspondent for Irish language news media. Here she is giving her reports from Kiev. <laughs> Vladimir Putin, Chancellor 
agus níríobh ein muncher na Donetsk, na muncher na Luhansk ar le an Ukraini, gdí chonaic an rúisín bhóvíle ciathar déag. Gréadann tú gan rachaisí níos fuide ná na poblachtí féin fógrí an urhaní Ukraini agus gan ninhí an rúisca bannúsach onra níos fuide stáxatíar nú fiú an onra cofádele kíf. Tamakinte gumé an koga an uh, mora oscor uh, linia, mar hulame putin a gramario eran koga in I in Ukraine a rare agus hula an andawin uh, gomlon gumé uh, gwil sershin a Ukraine igaist. I think at this point it's worth pausing and getting our heads around what exactly has been going on in Ukraine. This is a place that has played an incredibly important role in European history, but which lots of people in Europe and beyond don't know very much about. And that's quite an interesting thing in itself, because Ukraine is really huge. It has roughly the same land area as France, and it has the eighth highest population of any country in Europe at just over 43 million. On its western side, it shares a border with four EU member states. Those are Hungary, Poland, Slovakia and Romania. And then on its eastern side, it's almost entirely bordered by Russia. Like Ireland, Ukraine declared its independence just after World War I, from what was then the Russian Republic. But it was taken over by the Soviet Union only a few years after that. Independence was declared once again in 1991, as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And since then, Ukraine has found itself at the centre of a geopolitical tug of war. Naomi, over the last 10 years, Ukraine has been in the news quite a bit. Uh, Firstly, in 2013, when Ukrainians took to the streets to show their support for closer political ties to the EU. Then the following year, there was the ousting of President Viktor Yanukovych. And almost immediately afterwards, Vladimir Putin annexed the Crimean Peninsula, which had been part of Ukraine since 1954. We'll hear about all that in a minute, but Naomi, could you maybe fill us in on what exactly has been happening now in recent weeks? As I'm speaking, as we record, the situation is developing very rapidly and in an extremely sinister direction. Um, so tensions have been rising for weeks with essentially Russia building up an enormous military force along Ukraine's borders. As a result, Ukraine is suffering a lot economically. The Western powers like the United States and NATO and also the United Kingdom have been warning that their intelligence tells them that Russia has been planning a massive invasion of Ukraine. There have been attempts, successive attempts at diplomacy, with the likes of French President Emmanuel Macron and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz going to and from Moscow to meet with the Russian President Vladimir Putin and Mm. try and basically talk him down from whatever he's planning. But just in the last 24 hours, things have taken a really sinister direction. So... Just to give you the, a bit of backstory, for years, Russia has supported two breakaway enclaves in eastern Ukraine. They're called Donetsk and Luhansk. And there, pro-Russian Russian rebels seized power and they declared secession from Ukraine. A war has been going on there now for the guts of about a decade between the Ukrainian army and these Russian-backed forces. But as we record, just last night, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, announced that he would formally recognize the independence of those two enclaves, those two areas. Not only that, but that he would send the Russian army in to secure them. This was all announced in quite a rambling speech in which he talked through a century of history and denied that Ukraine had any right to exist really as a country at all. 
he sees it in his view as really part of Russia. This decision in particular to send the Russian military into Ukrainian territory has really provoked the European Union and other Western powers to respond with economic sanctions. But things could get worse. Um, the situation is evolving very rapidly, so I don't know what it will be like by the time this is published. But the great fear is that the Russian troops are going to push into territory that is now held by the Ukrainian army. So essentially to start a full-scale war in Europe. Okay, right. Now, we're recording on the evening of the 2nd of February. And uh, in the last few days, there's been all kinds of quite confusing information coming out. Um, reports of phone calls between um, Western leaders and, and Putin, uh, which, which seem to have kind of dissolved into thin air to to be complementary, or perhaps to to indicate that Putin is playing games uh, with these leaders. Uh, could you kind of explain, you know, h- how how people have been misled, or or how the media has been misled on this? Well, I think you know, almost every time that one of the EU leaders went to. Moscow, you know, initiated another talk or another call with the leadership in in Russia. Uh, there were hopes that, you know, Vladimir Putin could be persuaded to change course, and each each time was almost described as a last ditch attempt. But even though this diplomacy was ongoing, all the while Russian troops continued to build up. They also, there's a lot of them, maybe 45,000 of them in Belarus, uh, which also borders a load of EU member states. And it was announced just in recent days that rather than going home after having performed drills and going back to Russia, they're actually going to stay in Belarus indefinitely. So although talks were continuing the whole time, there was this continued military buildup. Just before I jumped on recording this, I was taking part in a press conference with the French foreign minister, Minister Le Trian, And he was saying that, you know, the door is always open for diplomacy. They hope that they can even now de-escalate things, but that all this very careful diplomatic preparation for weeks has basically come to nothing. So tell us what Nadia uh, was able to tell you about the historical backstory of how Ukraine got into this situation. So I'm in my 30s, so I've seen two revolutions in my lifetime. When I say revolutions, it's, well, these were just protests. For some reason in Ukraine, this term is used. So in 2004, there was an attempt by the incumbent president, Kuchma, to basically do what uh, was done by Boris Yeltsin to Putin, to assign a new president who would keep the basically the, the same policy on the same authority in power. And Ukrainians were opposed to that. Presidential elections were really, really forged and falsified by the, of the incumbent administration. And they really tried to get Viktor Yanukovych to become the president. And there were huge, huge protests, which were called Maidan, as in Maidan means literally a square in Ukraine, as in central square. And they were all peaceful. Like people were just singing and rallying these protests. And eventually the president said, right, OK, we will have the, the Supreme Court rule that there should be a new a re-election. And the independent candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, uh, one and he was the one who was poisoned by unidentified people who we are not sure even now like there was no proper investigation whether he was poisoned by the Russians 
or it was Ukrainian authorities who applied Russian tactics, but he was badly poisoned and he, his face was disfigured ever since. So after that, Viktor Yanukovych, the one who was, was destined by his predecessor to become the president, he eventually won the election in 2010 and he started turning Ukraine into a more authoritarian regime and developed huge kleptocratic rule in the country with prosecution of those who have dissent. In the meanwhile, the moods in Ukraine were really shifting towards the EU and possibly NATO too, and their process of signing the EU association agreement with Ukraine was worked on by Yanukovych's government because he was trying to keep this multilateralism by Ukraine. So, But then in 2013, for some reason, he refused to sign the association agreement, which would have granted visa-free travel for Ukrainians. We still don't know why he did this. I suppose historians later on will see the declassified documents, which will explain. But basically, he rejected the pro-European shift of Ukraine, and it caused huge protests. Barricades at Independence Square, also known as the Maidan. You can see the men who've been up all night here to defend it in case the riot police came. At issue, should Ukraine have closer ties to the US and Europe or Putin's Russia? It was mostly like intelligentsia and students who were deploring the rejection of the visa-free regime for Ukraine. The president started the huge crackdown on these protests and then it served caused a huge surge of support across the whole country. A very crucial evolution has taken place in the protesters who have been on the streets over the last week or so. They are no longer just angry with their government and want the the government to change its policy on integrating with the European Union. They have now, their demands have escalated. They are now talking about revolution. And when you talk to them on the streets, the one thing that is clear is that they are determined to stay there until they get what they want. After months of protests, he turned to police to shoot the protesters and throw light grenades. And, and I was in those protests and you just couldn't believe that you were just there so close to dying. At least 70 dead so far and the death toll rising. We are not terrorists. We are free people that, that want to live in a free, in a good country without corruption, with good laws. With good standards of, of living. It, it was this, this, this feeling that I, I get from when I'm reading the history of Bloody Sunday when there was just a peaceful protest and people were just shot because for no good reason. I had this, this similar feeling when Ukrainian protesters were shot by their own government. <laughs> Fled to Russia 
and his government collapsed. Eventually, the president fled. And also, it's not quite clear what exactly prompted him to flee, because these were just protests, like nobody was storming uh, his residence or threatening him or his allies. He fled to Russia. And since then, Russia started the invasion in the Crimea and later on in, in the east of Ukraine. Well, that's that's the short story about the Ukrainian um, political shift to the EU. In a grim parallel with Bloody Sunday, which Nadia mentions there, this violent reaction ultimately ended up backfiring on Russia when it came to Ukraine, Nadia says. I suppose Russian aggression against Ukraine did exactly what did exactly the opposite, if you know what I mean. If previously some Ukrainians had this un- certain unionist sentiment that they might that they were nostalgic about this big Soviet Union that they were part of, um, now they they all see Russia as an aggressor, and quite a few children have been growing up without Russian in the family, but being spoke raised with Ukrainian because people are quite aware that Russia uses Russian Russian speakers as uh, justification for meddling in the country's politics, and it's one of the tropes that Russia is using that there is a conflict between. So it's defending the Russian speakers in Ukraine. So you'd be surprised how many Ukrainians are refused to speak Russian ever since. So if Russia had any uh, plans to keep Ukraine within its remit, now it's, it really failed. It's turned Ukrainians against it. It's so interesting to hear you use the word unionist as well. Um, I mean, given your time living in the north in Belfast as well, do you feel there are any analogies between this kind of linguistic, ethnic, political affiliation split that you see in the north of Ireland? Well, to tell the truth, I see that we're too different. To some extent, the similarity is the similarity we share is the complexity of both stories, both situations. Because with Ukraine, to some extent, Ukrainians and Russians in Ukraine are indeed very mixed, and you wouldn't see that they're, you know, ethnically that that uh, ethnicities identifying their politics. So in this way, the, the religious background in Northern Ireland is probably a predictor of the political identity, but not necessarily. I think that to a large extent for Ukraine, it's it's more of what kind of future people want for Ukraine. It's not about, well, the, the Soviet Union, unlike the situation in Northern Ireland, Soviet Union is not there anymore. I call it unionist on purpose, in Ukraine are those people who are nostalgic for the past when they were part of the Soviet empire and they didn't have any national identity as strong as they do now. And with Northern Ireland, well, there is a union with the United Kingdom, so with Great Britain. So there's, it's about the present to a large extent. There is, of course, another perspective on all of these events, the Russian perspective. Moscow regularly describes what happened in the Maidan revolution as a coup and accuses those involved in it of being far right. Nadia told me that this kind of Russian slant on events finds quite an audience in Ireland, partly due to a misplaced sympathy in left-wing political circles towards Russia, due to a lingering association of what is now a capitalist oligarchic state with the old Soviet Union and partly because the base level of knowledge about Ukraine is so low. 
I asked Nadia how she found Ireland's coverage to be of events in Ukraine. I've been following the Ukrainian coverage in Ireland since 2019 when I came to Belfast to study. And up until recently, it was generally fine. I didn't have that much Irish as I have now, so I couldn't read the Irish-speaking news outlets. But what I could read in English back then was was all right. But now I'm seeing that Irish media are quite susceptible to Russian propaganda, which is really, no, it's really professional. But uh, like this morning, I saw uh, a story on an Irish TV channel where they were showing, for example, footage from Russia of refugee camps that have been set up for people who they basically deported from uh, the occupied territories in, in the east of Ukraine. And they're calling this evacuations. But they are not discussing that these people were basically deported from these territories because Russia has no authority to evacuate any people without really their, their consent. And nobody's telling this, the, the, re, the facts that men were not allowed to leave, even if they wanted to. They are being forcibly conscripted now to the occupation army to possibly fight against Ukraine, should the Russia command that. And, you know, like stories of refugee camps um, gets into the news. But I don't but I'm worried that because there hasn't been really strong um, expertise in Ukraine developed by now. You can just see that some of the analysis in the news is very superficial. And what struck me even more that um, some, I, I just discovered that at least one news outlet that has been spreading Russian misinformation about Ukraine for, for a long while. It's quite striking and I don't know what to make out of it. I suppose that there are lots of people with left wing orientation around the world, not just in Ireland, they're not aware that they've been subjected, not just to reasonably accurate stories just from Russian perspective, but they're subjected to misinformation, like produced specifically to misguide people to side with Russian politics, as we could see during the American elections, how this misinformation was spread. And Russia Russia is really doing this professionally on, on a global scale. I mean, it's clear from the language that you use that, you know, from this perspective, Russia is an empire, it has imperial ambitions, the acts that are taking are of an imperial nature. And yet often you see a narrative in the West, uh, particularly in some political circles, that Russia is anti-imperial, that somehow it's exempt from being sort of an aggressive uh, state that seeks to expand its borders. Do you have any insight into where that confusion comes from? To start with, there's this uh, prejudice in post-colonial theory about the land empires, as in you're only an empire if you, you have colonies overseas, but if you've conquered your neighbours, this is not quite an empire. It's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting, and I mean, I'm not the first person to, to say that. But also... I think that this is the heritage of the Soviet Union, that people with left-wing orientation, they're sort of still thinking about the Russia being as modern version of the Soviet Union, who was 
anti-capitalist with all the goodies that the socialist-oriented people in the West are dreaming of, maybe. in their, I mean, they're thinking that they're de- frustrated with the politics of their own countries, uh, deep class divisions in, in their countries and economical injustice. And, you know, because of the Iron Curtain, the West could only get the stories that the Soviet Union wanted them to get. When you think about the Soviet uh, government requisitioning food from Ukrainian farmers t- uh, to, well, to crush them, like 4 million Ukrainians died. It, um, it's for the sake of this collective economy that the Soviet government were building. When I, you know, when you bring this up, like there's this kind of wall of mis- un- un- wall of silence, like is this the socialism that they were told that there was in Soviet Union or that there was so much more equality, but then lots of people were poor and communist party elites were just the new uh, aristocracy or the new big business owners that are an equivalent in, in, in the capitalist West. So I think that there's this huge heritage of the Soviet propaganda about itself that for some reason has been attributed to Russia still. And also, I, I suppose it's just, it comes naturally that in, in, in the absence of interest in Ukrainian politics and maybe Eastern European politics in the West, that these stories are not being told. And I suppose there should be so much more work done by the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian public diplomacy to tell about the country that, well, listen, these are the Russian stories, this is the Soviet story of Ukrainian history, but here's our story. And you can go and check, verify this in Ukrainian archives, you can go come to Ukraine and talk to Ukrainian journalists and experts and just people on the ground. The reason why Russia is being presented as the victim night right now is partly a product of the, this historical propaganda and also lack of other stories. I asked Nadia from where she's standing, what does she think Vladimir Putin's ultimate aim is when it comes to Ukraine? Can I ask, from where you are, What's the understanding of what Russia is doing? Why is President Vladimir Putin taking these actions? What's the ultimate aim, at least in terms of how you and the the people around you understand it? My sense is that the primary aim of all this war now and since 2014 was to stop Ukraine from getting away from Russian sphere of interest as they see it. They did the same to Moldova in 1990 when there was a Russian army in, in Moldova and they created this Transnistria, the unrecognized gray zone formation. And it was to prevent Moldova from the, uh, getting close closer with the, vet, with the West. The same happened they did to Georgia in 2008. So I see that creating these unrecognized formations is one of these ways to block Ukraine, for example, from joining NATO and to really impede Ukrainian uh, integration with the European Union in whichever form it can be taken, is it membership or just close association? It's, there is one dimension. And the other dimension is that for some reason, Russia has had this strong urge to annexate Crimea because they have this big myth about the Crimea being the... Russian territory, and they've been deploring that in uh, early 1960s, the Crimea was transferred to the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Republic 
for many reasons. It's been a very painful spot for them, even though there is an indigenous people of Crimean Tatars who have been living there for centuries, like you'd say that they've been there since the Mongol Tatar came to Europe. And they have this huge, long, very long history in the Crimea, but Russia is now asserting that it's just, it has always been Russian territory and they are destroying the archaeological heritage, the historical monuments, like but by supposedly by renovation, but they're just basically ruining it. And Ukrainian NGOs are keeping close eye as well as the Ukrainian state on these, these movements by Russian government. So these are different reasons. And also there is this underlying myth that is strong in Russian elites and well, this Russian identity that is prevalent at the moment, that they, they see the Kiev and Rus, the medieval state on the territory of Ukraine, that it was the cradle of their history, of their identity. And unfortunately for Russia, this is part of modern Ukraine now. And they just cannot build their identity without having certain degree of control over these territories and that's that's the, one of the reasons why I don't see that there is a way to pacify Russia and to appease them to leave Ukraine alone. They will always be trying to dismantle Ukraine as an independent entity. As always, the historical background to current events can often be very insightful. In fact, Nadia told us that there are some interesting commonalities between the histories of Ukraine and of Ireland. Uh, perhaps most strikingly is the devastating famines that struck both countries within about 80 years of one another, and which shaped the future of both countries for generations afterwards. Both famines as well were intimately linked to each nation's struggle for independence. In Ukraine, the Great Famine of 1932 is known as Holodomor, which translates as to kill by starvation. And as you can probably guess from that name, the event itself was very far from a natural disaster. The Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Anne Applebaum wrote a fascinating book on this subject, uh, which came out in 2017, called Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine. Now, she notes that Ukraine's Holodomor was largely a result of Joseph Stalin's brutal policies in the country, which included the forced collectivization of peasant farms at the time. Uh, Ukraine was, and still is, one of Europe's biggest grain producers. But at this time, huge amounts of food w was being exported out of the country to relieve shortages in the rest of the Soviet Union. The result was the starvation of millions. Estimates of the death toll in this famine vary pretty wildly, 
but all of them are on a colossal scale. Uh, most recent estimates fall at around 4 million dead, but some higher estimates have suggested as much as 10 million. And even though those numbers are so huge, and even though all this happened within living memory, you know, this is the 1930s we're talking about, it's hard to know the exact figure for sure. The USSR later destroyed archives and altered censuses, and thus obscured population data from the time. In addition, Applebaum notes that starvation was only one dimension of this story. Stalin saw Ukrainian national identity as a threat to the unity of the USSR, and the famine was seen as an opportunity to weaken the country through resource extraction. So during the famine, the Soviets used this moment of weakness in Ukraine to dismantle as much of Ukrainian national identity as they could. Starving peasants were encouraged to sell their gold and their valuables in exchange for food, meaning that up and down the country, churches were stripped of their icons and their decorations, people sold their ancient heirlooms, you know, rings were melted down, whole histories and traditions were just lost forever, almost in an instant. Like in Ireland, villages and towns all over the country fell into abandon, but unlike in Ireland, the Ukrainian peasants did not have the option to emigrate. They were actually forbidden from leaving the country during this time. And at the same time, Applebaum notes, the Soviets carried out a targeted campaign against Ukrainian intellectuals. That's people like artists, like writers, teachers, priests, basically anyone who had promoted the Ukrainian language or Ukrainian history were publicly slandered or they were sent to labor camps or they were sometimes executed. Astoundingly, even with millions of dead and whole swathes of the country lying devastated, the USSR refused to recognize that any famine happened at all. And they kept refusing that right up until 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. But ultimately this catastrophe was so momentous that even with that might of, you know, 50 years of Soviet censorship, there was no way to completely cover up just the sheer amount of evidence that this event left behind. And after Ukrainian independence, historians were finally free to delve back into this history. And in recent years, a whole host of new research has been led into what really happened in Ukraine in the 1930s. Let's hear from Nadia again. Huge tragedy of the Irish people and the Ukrainian people are at the hands of, of the state. And well, I'm not an expert in the Irish famine, so I'm pretty, I'm, I know that there's so many views and so many disputes about it. But you can see the, the trauma of whole nation having been subjected to famine, which I think that to a large extent did break the backbone of the Irish language in Ireland. And I think that it was one of the reasons well, of what Stalin was doing in Ukraine too. It was the Ukrainian farmers who suffered, who, well, whose food was taken, was requisitioned by the state to crush their resistance to collectivizations and, and their land being taken from them by the Soviet government. Well, if an Irish situation there, well, there are different views, was the state complicit or the state was... Uh, negligent about the famine but in Ukrainian situation it was the, the state Mo uh, Moscow Stalin which is literally ordering the food to be taken from Ukrainians. My study of the Irish famine really opened my eyes to what I know about Ukrainian famine especially about the silences that we I'd, in Ukrainian history about the famine that I didn't even question myself 
As in, in my family, I know that nobody died from the famine. But having studied Irish famine, I'm not sure now. Me, I mean, you know, this, the stories of people, family members dying from famine might not be just shared because it's the same in Ireland. Nobody died. That's what people you see when you read the memories that were collected. And it's like, right, well, lots of people have died. How come nobody died in, in my family and in other families that I talk to? It's, it's this comparative uh, perspectives are very interesting. And the famine still hurts Ukraine too. I mean, there are lots of research to be done how the famine impacts our daily life. So I'm not quite sure that some of this of our thoughts about how Ukrainians uh, treat the food, you know, like uh, really worried about the food, even though we are living in very, uh, in the times when Ukraine is relatively faring well economically, but it's there's something in, in the back of your mind that says, well, I need to be sure that there's going to be food tomorrow or how, where I go, is there going to be food too? Nadia told me that her own great aunt had lived through one of Ukraine's later famines in the 1940s, when food was once again requisitioned from farmers. So she was a teenager in the famine. This is the famine from uh, 1946-47, uh, which was after the war. Of after the World War II. So what was happening is that the Soviet government was requisitioning food from Ukrainian farmers. And there was indeed a failure of crops that year, but the food was requisitioned and exported to, guess where? To Western Europe. Because there was short food, there were food shortages, so the food was taken from Ukrainian farmers and exported elsewhere. And my great aunt, well, she was telling me that she was young and she was scared and these food requisitionings were terrifying. And they were just looking for food just outside, eating the wild plants, uh, looking for uh, remains of the grains in their stashes. It was, yeah, it was horrendous. And if, if you think about it, that she was so young, She's had this terror and grief from that period with her uh, throughout her own her life, and so did her family members. I was writing an essay at Queen's about the Irish folklore collections on the famine and how it could be used as in memory studies. The historians used to discard it as being inaccurate because this, these are the memories of the third generation, like children who whose parents suffered in the in in the famine. And I was thinking, right, well. This is what I was doing to my great aunt because I didn't live through that and my parents didn't. But then I was interviewing her and I was third generation to collect this evidence. There's more work to be done for my generation to see how this trauma uh, of the famine really impacts us. But the famine is also featuring on our debate about why Ukraine never, ever wants to be under the Russian rule because we've seen these Ukraine suffered three famines throughout the Soviet rule in early 1920s, in 1930-34 and 1946-47. And there is no justification for Russian rule if you think about these experiences.
Another curious parallel between the history of Ireland and the history of Ukraine, Nadia suggests, is how both countries were subjects of colonisation and also sometimes played a part in the colonisation of other places. Well, one of the things is that um, neither Ukraine nor Ireland fit into this contemporary concept of colonies and uh, post-colonial studies. And this is very interesting because up to the end of the uh, 18th century, Ukraine was basically united with Russia as just a region. And it's interesting that Ireland, after the United Irishmen's Revolution, Ireland uh, got a union with the UK, which basically made Ireland a subject of the UK as well. It's about the same time. And there's this story about both countries being subjects of colonization and to some extent being part of the armies who were involved in colonizing other parts. And it's such an awkward place where countries that were basically colonized within, the, within Europe are, uh, are seen as quite unique or outliers of uh, the colonial theory. But in fact, there are so many of us like Ukraine and Ireland. The other thing about commonalities is, yes, about the struggle for independence after the, uh, the First World War. And I was thinking that Ireland had this long tradition of secret societies and uh, developing armed struggle that when after the First World War, the War of Independence started, Ireland, to some extent, had this military background. Of course, you can't say that it was well prepared, but Ukraine lacked that. There was nothing. I was telling this to a colleague recently that Ukrainians in Irish dimensions were all home rulers. There were no Republicans. And to a large extent, I think that it was one of the reasons why Ukrainian struggle for independence uh, after the First World War was not that successful, that it was occupied by Bolsheviks in early 20s and eventually became part of the uh, Soviet Union. The history of Ukraine's independence movement in the early 20th century has some striking parallels with what was happening in Ireland at the same time. Similarly too, the concept of what nationalism means has left a huge legacy on both countries, as Nadia explains. Ukraine has always been keeping an eye on Ireland. Historically, Ukrainian intelligentsia in the 19th century were quite well aware of the Home Rule movement. And there's this fantastic story that I heard in a conference on Irish and Ukrainian history in Kiev in 2019, that when the doll declared that they will not be taking seats, created the doll and said that they won't go to the Westminster. In, in the meantime, the Ukrainian army already lost the war to the Polish and the Soviet forces. There were elections to be held in Western Ukraine and Ukrainian Politicians at that time were looking at Ireland and thinking, do we do the same? Do we boycott the elections or do we go stand in, in the elections and then declare that, well, we won't go to the Polish parliament and we will just have our own? Well, they didn't proceed with that. I, mean, I don't think that Ukraine would have gotten away with that after the First World War, but they were really well aware of its of what was going on in Ireland at that time. And also there is evidence that Ukrainian nationalist uh, organization own were drawing inspirations from the IRA later in the 20th century, looking at their tactics and thinking whether they could adopt 
some of them in their struggle. So there are indeed some connections. And I mean, in terms of Ukrainian nationalism and aspirations for independence, is there a very clear link then to those times um, from the to the to the growth of such movements? And I suppose they would have been underground during Soviet times. Yeah, there were. Well, Ukrainian nationalism is a is a very interesting story in itself, as I call it, vegetarian nationalism before the First World War, which was about having basically home rule. If you're using Irish terms, since Ukraine was incorporated in the uh, Soviet Union, there, the Soviet Union espoused this policy of indigenization when they saw that Ukrainians are not buying into communist values and interests. Around 14 to 18 percent of Ukrainians voted for the Communist Party in the first and only independent elections early 20s. So the Soviet Union really saw that there is no support for the Soviet Union. And what they did was basically supporting local nationalism, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere too. And there were quite a few, basically, Ukrainian nationalist communists. The people who were thinking about Ukraine, Ukraine within this, with this communist ideology, which was prevalent at the time, but then they were all crushed in the 1930s with huge repression. And, well, many people were shot by fire squads and put in prison and sent to, to Siberia. And so any nationalist movement would have been in the underground ever since. My great-grandfather was almost sent to Siberia, or he could have been possibly even executed, but uh, because he was supposedly accused of being the enemy of the state. And is, if it hadn't been for my great-grandmother who was telling you're innocent and you don't admit to anything you didn't do and he didn't admit and he was the only one in that prison the story goes that wasn't sentenced and he survived I think that the version of Ukrainian nationalism that we see now since 2014 is a very different one because previously it was more of an ethnic nationalism of different sorts but now the version of nationalism has changed. There are Russian-speaking uh, Ukrainians who see them as part of the Ukrainian na- nation. There are Jewish Ukrainians who are seeing them as part of political nation. And I think that to a large extent, the current war with Russia really changed the landscape of who Ukrainians think they are and who can be Ukrainian. And I think that the concept of a Ukrainian right now has really expanded in a good way. So there is no need to be an ethnic Ukrainian or be a Ukrainian speaker or to have been born in Ukraine to be considered as a Ukrainian. You can see people from all nations who are living in Ukraine right now advocating for Ukraine around the world and saying, well, I'm, I'm Black and I'm Ukrainian, I'm Japanese and I'm Ukrainian. So what's it like living in Ukraine right now? Nadia says that it's difficult really to know exactly what to expect. To tell the truth, it's really terrifying to be immersed in this. I mean, Ukraine has been basically in the state of war with Russia since Russia occupied the Crimea eight years ago and then stirred up the, the war in the east of Ukraine, which is, yeah, like journalists from the West are calling them separatists, but it's basically Russian special forces who first took over the cities and then there were indeed some locals joining them. So it's been an ongoing war and Russia has been taking Ukrainian political prisoners, like there are 131 person kept that now in Russian prisons on completely fabricated charges and around 200 people are kept in 
basically illegal prisons and torture facilities in the occupied territories in Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast under Russian control. So we're, we've been living uh, in the news and about the war all the time, and people like 25% of Ukrainians have been affected by the war. To some extent, it's just an aggravation of what I'm used to, what many Ukrainians are used to because of the Russian aggression. As the world watches on in apprehension, for the moment, Nadia says she'll continue to live her life, including her regular traditional music sessions in O'Brien's pub. We play in the afternoon. We start at noon. We have this agreement that the pub has uh, is showing football matches and during the days or in the evening. So we are we have this our spot during the afternoon in on Sundays. It's just you know. I can't say that we are defying the war by playing Irish traditional music. We're just playing Irish traditional music and there happens to be a war. And yeah, we're just, yeah, enjoying it, taking turns, uh, asking each other, give us a tune, give us a tune. And we just go on and play. And uh, there are some fellows who play in, in Irish traditional bands. There is a band called Room and an, uh, Ringfort, different bands. And there are people like me who are not part of the band. And there was a fellow who came to the session for the first time and just was seeing uh, what he could play and just enjoying the music. And some of my friends came over to the pub to listen to us. So it was it was good crack. It's it's just about doing what we like. And I know like the world, it seems like Jesus Christ, there's a war out there. They're playing Irish traditional music. Irish traditional music is part of our lives. It's part of my life for sure. And we just keep carrying on with our lives while the Ukrainian army is cleaning their guns and ready to resist at any time should there be an invasion. Our deepest thanks to Nadia and our best wishes to her and all of the people living through this horrific situation in Ukraine. Thanks also to you for listening. If you want to hear more from Nadia in English, Ukrainian or Oskelga, you can find her on Twitter at at Nadia Dobrianska and we'll put that in our show notes too. Don't forget also to check out our sponsors, Irish at Heart, where you can get a 15% discount off your first order using the code Irish Passport. If you want to support the podcast, you can also do so on Patreon, where you'll find a whole host of exclusive extra content. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport to become a supporter today. And that's all from us for this episode. Slán, everyone. Slán. Slán.